There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc working in the lab late one night. (laughs) And over here, where my eyes behold an eerie sight, is my co-host. This is your friendly neighborhood pediatric infectious diseases ghoul, Dr. Santosh. Nice to meet you, Dr. Josh. Ah. Uh, uh. Someone once asked me who my favorite vampire was, and I yeah. told them the Muppet from Sesame Street. Yeah. yeah, and when they said he didn't count, I said, "I assure you, he does." <laughs> <laughs> All the time, you see him count. The men's the the dude's obsessed with counting that little purple Muppet. Do you know that is based on a superstition that vampires are obsessive compulsive? No, I I didn't know that. Where where does that come from? Like Brothers Grimm era folklore, where if one is chasing you or after you, you can scatter a bunch of rice or salt and they'll have to stop to count all the grains. Well, that's, I mean, that's such a strange kind of factoid. I I don't even know where that came from. I don't know that I'd call it a fact. I, I can't <laughs> say it's been scientifically tested. <laughs> sorry, run through, or, run through or, a rigorous. No, no, no. Well, well, sorry, myth fact. You know, myth fact. The 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 you know the fact that it's been documented as in, within the mythology. That's the that's the one. Well, as you may have guessed, boys and ghouls, this is time for our welcome back Halloween episode. Uh. (laughs) so we've rounded up 
a few different medically themed horror tales or facts to cover. And, you know, we've talked about vampires before, uh, largely to discuss a possible medical condition that could be confused with it, which is, of course, porphyria as a possible cause of vampirism. Right. Highlighted in the amazing episode of Psych, where there was actually, they thought they were vampire hunting, but it turned out to be someone with a blood disorder. I mean, I guess you could see Psych, or you could listen to our Halloween episode that talks about the same thing. (laughs) Do both, do both, then you'll be twice as happy. So we've discussed Porphyria before, but let's talk briefly about why vampires are improbable because they couldn't exist solely as bloodsuckers. Yes, that is my objection <laughs> to vampire movies. I could, <laughs> I could feel just the stare you are yeah. giving me. What's <laughs> the matter with you? Yeah, okay, okay, fine. Okay, look, we've talked about porphyria as a cause of vampirism, and we've even talked about cooking with human blood as a replacement for certain proteins like eggs. Yes, For those of you just joining, boy, have you missed a lot in the last few years. Here's the thing. For anyone who's ever wondered, and let's face it, some of you probably have, human blood is just a poor nutrient source. It took a little while to dig up the actual information and facts on this, but by golly, wouldn't you know it, someone has taken the time to do this research. Oh, all right, golly. So... It's about 60% plasma by volume, but only provides approximately 900 calories per liter. So a successful vampire, bare minimum, would have to drink about two and a half liters daily. Liters. Yeah, that's that. your two liter, by the way, if you're here in the United States, that's your standard bottle of soda. And most people don't even want to do the eight glasses of water. Like most people don't even drink enough water. so <laughs> Which is a whole other thing, by the way. You don't need eight glasses of water. <laughs> but we'll, we'll leave that for another episode. Drinking two and a half liters of blood and all that calorie is coming from circulating red blood cell protein. So there's no glucose or fat unless I guess your victim is particularly diabetic. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, poor, poor A1C. <laughs> Right. Well, there are there are little glycoproteins and moieties on there. I will tell you, Josh, that and also in order to break it down and to use all of that nutrition, they'd have to have, you know, mutations to have the right enzymatic practices and that kind of thing. So for instance, vampire bats that do drink blood, number one, they have really, really cool stuff in their saliva that prevents the blood from clotting so they can lap it up and that kind of thing, which is we've talked about that before. But the other part of it is that you can't necessarily get access to all of that nutrition because you don't have the right enzymes to digest the cellular material or or some of the other proteins. So it just gets kind of locked up and then you basically just poop black. (laughs) It just gets all locked. Sure. You get, well, okay. Let's, let's look at some of the individual things you need. Let's start with say vitamin C because that's, that's the worst case example because we can't manufacture or store it. That's why it's a vitamin. It's vital. It's yeah. Um, There, there are some of these micronutrients we can somewhat kind of thing, but you're right. Vitamin C, we need to get externally. So the average blood levels of vitamin C are around five milligrams a liter. And the World, the World Health Organization recommends about 45 milligrams of vitamin C per day. Mm-hmm. So just to do 
basic, simple level arithmetic, you'd need to drink nine liters of blood to avoid getting scurvy, <laughs> which would give you so many calories that you'd rapidly become overweight. So, oh, obese vampire. Oh, that makes Or food. scurvy vampire. Uh, <laughs> well, that would explain why he's so like kind of like all the time. Just wounds open up way too easily and he's just kind of rickety and, you know, that Nosferatu like can't like kind of control himself. I just like the idea of a chubby vampire. You know. <laughs> chubby vampire Josh is amazing. That just, that now, made my whole day because now it's just in my head. It's just like chubby vampire. Now the internet uh, responded to that, to that factoid by simply suggesting, of course, that the vampire doses their victims with lemons before biting them. <laughs> so, now, so now your chubby vampire has a belt with like a tool belt or a fanny pack with some lemons uh, because, because this would... Because this would raise the serum levels to about 15 milligrams per liter, and therefore the three liters of blood would be just enough to meet those daily requirements. <laughs> Chubby rib! Ah! But it's hemoglobin, right? It carries heme. So what about the high iron content of blood? Right. So this is another problem. We are supposed to have a certain amount of iron that we need for the processes that we have. There, there is some that goes into the middle of the hemoglobin molecule. That's what actually helps us carry oxygen without getting poisoned by other molecules in the air. So for instance, hemoglobin could potentially bind carbon monoxide as well, but the iron, you know, the, the way it's shaped and everything actually helps us absorb the oxygen without carrying on these toxic things in the air. But uh, you know, you also have it as a cofactor for making energy and that kind of thing. If you have too much, though, you can get iron overloaded, and that can cause some very severe damage to you, starting with destroying your liver. Now, when you say iron overloaded, let, this is going to be something that occurs over time, and we'll we'll circle back to that because. Healthy humans uh -huh. can tolerate up to about 45 milligrams of iron a day. We're talking about in one sitting and still have it be processed by your body. So you'd need to drink around mm, 26 liters of blood to absorb that much. <laughs> Forget about chubby vampire. You know, that yeah. one's... <laughs> now, I, I guess the internet could also come back with things like, you know, do they have to only drink blood? Right, because that's that's also kind of a question of like that's that's pretty standard vampire lore. It, it's pretty standard, or like if zombies they, eat brains. Yeah, werewolves change in a full moon. <laughs> like vampires if they drink blood. Drink blood. Like if they try to eat something different, uh, they get like sick and they throw up or something. Like so, if they try to eat an orange, they and then then you know that's the you know kind of thing. So yeah, okay, I, I so, suppose that's so. So you're not going to overload on iron as a vampire, sure. and if you're carrying around a little a bunch of lemons or oranges on you to stuff into your victims, <laughs> sure. sure. But the real danger, same as for humans, salt, especially human blood yes. in the year in the year 2020. <laughs> uh, human blood in general has about nine grams of salt per liter. And that means those three liters you're drinking each day would give you around 
four and a half times your recommended daily allowance, which would then give you dehydration and kidney failure if you didn't also drink lots of water. And even if you did, you'd still end up with high blood pressure. You'd probably end up on dialysis and then just receiving blood through a much less fun method. Uh, <laughs> well, and then I guess you get blood anyway that way. <laughs> dialysis vampire. <laughs> Josh, uh, nurse, nurse, <laughs> the machine is blinking. <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> I know we're really taking a lot of the romanticism out of the vampire lore yeah, here, but <laughs> dude, this is not you know the the sexy sparkly vampire. This isn't even the older sexy Anne Rice. You know, your Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt vampire. <laughs> this is just, it's just so, like, horrible. So that's, so we've already talked about some of the nutritional problems. Now let's just talk about the sheer volume. Yeah. The average human body holds about five liters or nine to 12 pints for, I guess, beer drinking vampires. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So just to meet those three liter requirements, vampires would have to kill a person every single day just to stay alive which is by the way that's fair that's within vampire lore pretty well the total number of intentional homicides in 2018 was about five per hundred thousand now imagine you have even one vampire yeah yeah killing a person every (laughs) Every day day. (laughs) think of the spike in the murder rate yeah it would be absolutely insane just astronomical (laughs) <laughs> it's absolutely um, and you'd have like chronic ketoacidosis yeah <laughs> that's true that's true because you're, you're not getting the sugar that you need oh my god josh keto vampire <laughs> i kept look my carb count is so low <laughs> i basically you're getting the equivalent of something like two thousand transfusions a year <sighs> and hoping and hoping that rejection syndrome doesn't destroy your food source. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh! What reject? T- tell me about rejection syndrome. No. Fine. Get it? Ah! <laughs> All right. You're talking about rejection syndrome in that if you're taking in so much blood, then you're actually going to start like having blood blood interactions like the way you would if you had a transfusion reaction that kind of thing yeah so it even you know blood's another organ so think about not accepting any kind of transplant eventually if you keep importing foreign blood into your body whether you're an obligate hemophage and eat it or whether you receive constant transfusions for people who have things like sickle cell disease or uh, bleeding disorders, eventually your body starts creating antibodies to destroy blood transfusions. You have an invisible wall that shreds any and all blood attempting to come into you separate from the reaction. It just gets broken down. Right. So this is as a, for instance, uh, you know, everyone listening, if you have hemophilia, for instance, uh, or thalassemia, where you have to get these repleted blood transfusions, there comes a time actually when they start building up antibody, even if you have matches, because you start getting antibodies against these minor blood groups. And there's actually a, a big 
field of science that's just dedicated to blocking those antibodies so that the person who is a, is the hemophiliac receiving the transfusions can continue to receive the transfusions without getting horrible transfusion reactions. I always forget that the Greek for hemophiliac is blood lover. It is, yeah. Hemo. <laughs> well, it could be blood lover or it could be iron lover. So somebody who's hemophiliac loves blood. Can't get enough. Just like a vampire, and you'd end up rejection syndrome would ultimately destroy your food source. Right. So, which does make sense that those people way in the past who had hemophilia, you know, especially the families that had hemophilia, like the royal blood, that they couldn't live very long. Because even if you figured out how to transfuse, you'd run into this problem of, uh, you know, eventually rejecting the blood. And probably before that happens, you get over a long enough time, hemochromatosis or a buildup of iron in the vessels like the liver and the lungs and the nerves. Right. So liver, it's going to start causing liver failure. You'll get jaundiced. Uh, so now you have jaundiced vampire. <laughs> you have jaundiced, obese, hypertensive vampire. <laughs> and there's the skin's going to turn all yellow. And eventually if that bilirubin because of liver failure, it gets high enough and it invades your brain and, and it can kill you. Iron getting into the lung is going to stop air exchange until you have enough of a buildup where your lungs literally become rusted shut and you're not able to take a breath anymore. I guess it really depends what kind of undead immune systems vampires have. Sure. But just yeah. the nutritional requirements alone make it impractical. So should you ever be offered a choice to join the children of the night, I suggest you politely decline. <laughs> we'll all remember that. Yeah. If it if it ever comes up. <laughs> yeah. Stay safe, kids. <laughs> Are you a horror movie fan, Santosh? So we've had this conversation a couple of times. I'm actually not. Like, I don't enjoy just sitting and watching a horror movie for the fun of watching the horror movie. I will enjoy a horror movie with friends of mine who enjoy it. I, I don't get too scared or, or run away from it. But I'm not – I'm also not one who's going to, like, chill out and just enjoy a horror movie. At, uh, are, on you, a are you easily spooked? I'm, uh, uh, yeah, I'll jump in that kind of a thing, but it won't turn into the type of fear where I, I have to like shut it off or something like that. With the exception of some of the, like the demons hiding below type of thing. Uh, what was that Denzel Washington movie where the demon was going from host to host? Oh, uh, Fallen? kept whistling the that song from the Beatles time is yeah, on my time side. is on my side yeah that one because it's unseen like you don't actually see the monster you just like it could be absolutely anywhere i definitely had like a spooked moment after i saw that movie so yeah yeah, so I mean you you found that fairly spooky, frightening, terrifying, uh -huh. one might even say blood curdling. And I think I might have had one blood curdling scream. That movie, I found <laughs> it I found it blood curdling. Well, Santos, speaking of blood curdling, <laughs> it has been said and not in the last 30 seconds alone that horror movies curdle the blood sure, or sure. can. 
Yeah. Apparently, that old wives' tale or old saying is onto something. The idea evolved from the idea that fear could curdle blood like milk or run the blood cold. Sure. But researchers from the Netherlands, of all places, decided to investigate. And they're like, hmm, we wonder whether it really can form more clots, which they say would be an important evolutionary benefit. So as in the body... The body is preparing for blood loss in life-threatening situations. Oh, I see. I see. So in case you actually do get, you know, you're being chased by your thing and you don't get killed, but you get chased down and you get slashed, you know, and then you're still trying to get away. You're not going to bleed to death while running away. So, you know, if you're being chased by a Michael Myers or a Jason or a Freddy, you know, anyone who might cut you to the point where you would need Fast clotting factors. Right. You're, you're still trying to get away. You know, you're, you haven't been killed yet and you're trying to run. And it would really suck to lose ground for something dumb like, you know, you're low on blood. <laughs> now, now, full disclosure, this is a little bit of an older study. This was released back in around 2015 or 16. Uh, but still fun. The team gathered 24 healthy volunteers of approximately college age, small small sample, to watch films and have their blood drawn. 14 of the participants were assigned to watch a frightening horror movie, followed by an educational, non-threatening movie about champagne. (laughs) Okay, got it. About champagne. All right, okay. The other 10 watched the same movies, but in reverse order. The non-threatening champagne movie followed by the horror movie. Right. So this is a, a, a way in psychology to provide a kind of one-to-one self-control. So where every person kind of acts a little bit like their own control. But you can do the comparison by comparing apples to apples. Like everybody was exposed to the same thing, just in the different order. The team then analyzed blood samples for... Uh, oh, let's just call them fear factors. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If they had higher fear factors or lower fear factors. Or, you know, clotting activity. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Boring. <laughs> Dude, now every single time I have a patient on the ward and we're worried about clotting, I'm going to walk up to my hematologist just completely nonchalantly and be like, huh. How's the fear factors? <laughs> Just watch them look at me blankly. <laughs> oh, and in case you're wondering what the horror movie was, those of you sitting there screaming at me, say it, say it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It was Insidious, which I have to admit, the first one does have a few really good scares. All right. All right. Participants also had to rate their fear on a visual scale, ranging from zero, being no fear, to 10, the worst fear imaginable. And predictably, you know, Insidious was rated as more frightening than a year in Champagne. (laughs) Just looking at there was a 5.4 mean difference in fear rating. There's a couple people who are just terrified (laughs) of of bubbly drinks. Yeah, it was was just (laughs) because that isn't as big as we would thought, right? Because you'd think that there should be a mean difference of somewhere on the order of like eight or nine, something like that. But uh, I think the issue might have been, Josh, that 
Insidious was not as feared as they would have liked it to be. So I choose to believe that Champagne was more frightening than they intended. <laughs> so dumb. Okay. Just one student having nightmares. <laughs> the bubbles. On the, the bubbles everywhere. <laughs> on the buy, on the buy. The scientists did call them fear factors in in the actual paper. So the primary outcome measures were markers or fear factors of coagulation. So throughout the entire article, they called them fear factors. We measured the fear factors, et cetera, et cetera. So the difference in coagulant factor or clotting factor eight, which was their most significant marker, levels before and after watching the horror movie was higher than for the champagne movie. And it increased by about 57% during Insidious and 14% during Champagne, while levels of coagulant were also noted to decrease in 86% of the people watching the Champagne movie, but less than half, 43% during the horror movie. Interestingly, the team found no effect on the other major proteins in the internal clotting pathway from well, either movie. N- so, not overall, not overall, but they did see some individual differences which were quite striking. This suggests that coagulation may be triggered or primed by acute fear, but it doesn't actually lead to clot formation. So you cannot scream yourself into a DVT or a <laughs> Or a pulmonary blood clot. Right, right, right. Now, we've talked about before fear, you know, scaring yourself to death. There are other mechanisms that we've talked about, whether it's a cardiac arrhythmia uh, or, or actually a seizure. But this isn't one of the ways to die by fear. What do you do once you have, let's say, screamed yourself to death? <laughs> I, I mean, you don't do anything. You're talking about other people. Like, what do they do? Sure. Yeah, they bury. What's the next process? Yeah, they, they bury you. They bury you. Sure. Yeah. They. They. Uh, well, depending on what you know, cultural background you come from, you get buried. You get burned. You get left for the, the scavengers to pick your bones. For most people, at a at a certain point, regardless of what you're put in, you put a body in soil, and bacteria is going to get to it. Yes. And they will be able to thrive because there's plenty of oxygen around the body. Remember that fact. It's important, and we'll come back to it later. Over a couple of decades, most bodies will break down, so nothing is left. But let's say that you bury a corpse somewhere where there isn't a lot of oxygen available. Okay. So, oh, um, so sealed casket would be one idea. If you, uh, oh, if they go under the sea, down where it's wetter. That's not always better. (laughs) Take it from me. (laughs) So under the sea would be one, or if the body gets trapped in a place, uh, you know, uh, under a cave or something like that, where the oxygen gets consumed really quickly, and then it's it's done, and it's all converted to CO2. Yeah, so there's, that explains the whole range of different ways you can find corpses, zombies, mummies, you know, whatever your preferred ooh, form ooh, of undead Josh. is. Actually, we talked about this before, the swamp bodies... The bodies in the, you know, like the swamps in Ireland or Scotland, they get trapped in there and there isn't good oxygen circulation going through the bog. And so 
it actually mummifies and preserves the bodies without necessarily having to be cold or something like that. They, they, they don't break down very well. So they're really, really well preserved. They use the same technique to save butter for a really long time. You can make bog butter. Mm, bog butter. <laughs> so yeah, when you have a very moist area, water can hit the fat, the decomposing fat, and start a process called hydrolysis by bacteria that don't require oxygen. And then these water molecules split fat molecules and recombine them. And then you get hydrogenation where the hydrogen can combine with fat to make it even harder. And hydrogenated and hydrolyzed fats right. coat the outer body, sealing it off inside and seals off anything else uh, that was along there, like sediment with the body, and over time turns into corpse wax, yeah. which is a thing <laughs> that you now know. Well, I mean, before <laughs> before we get to corpse wax, if you're saying like hydrogenated, that's as a for instance how you get plant oils which will not congeal in order to turn into something that looks like butter or a spread is you hydrogenate the oils so that they congeal into a solid substance rather than a liquid. And so, and, and that's the stuff that we say often, and it's probably not a good idea to eat a lot of that. But if you can imagine that like, <laughs> like Crisco, <laughs> like your body makes its own Crisco. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> it's all over your guts. Now, <laughs> This basically is another way of mummifying people that the body does itself. It preserves it very well. And over time, a few scientists, because there's always a few, devoted time and effort into replicating that and figuring out how to make it intentionally. And the name of this process is adiposer or saponification. Oh, yeah. Um, Making corpse wax. And they looked at, they started with pigs and how that, and looked at how that developed wax under the right condition, but others through caution and presumably gag reflexes to the winds and rounded up human tissue. And they looked at pH levels, temperature, soil types. There are whole body farms, which we'll talk about in another episode, devoted to essentially forensic medicine and looking at how humans decompose under different conditions. But ultimately... They found the best way to grow corpse wax on the quick and cheap was, ready for it, Mm. tap water. Tap water? Tap water. Submerge a body in warm tap water for 18 months and corpse wax will begin to form. And the temperature doesn't even have to be that well controlled. Anything from 21 to 45 degrees centigrade will get wax going and in 18 months there'll be a coating visible. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So there's enough probably just uh, what uh, salts and stuff like that in, in the tap water in order to allow for the saponification. Uh, Yeah. In most natural tap water. Now this is pretty much everywhere. So it's not something that you can remove from it. This is not a Flint, Michigan situation. Uh, everybody's tap water can do this. Don't uh, try it at home. Dick. Just <laughs> No, no. These guys did it for you. So you didn't have to. And part of the reason they learned this is this is a huge problem. Apparently in Germany, 
Oh, not with okay. people running folks in tap water. Well, okay, <laughs> okay, but, okay, that's all right. Okay, but apparently, funerals in Germany are very, very regulated and strict. And most people want a burial, but very few have enough funds to keep their grave tended for more than you know several decades. Sure. So people are buried in a place with the understanding that about you know 30 to 50 years after their death they would be shuffled somewhere else and the grave would be reused for a new body okay uh, and by that time any body is you know most bodies would have decomposed so they really wouldn't planning on having to move too many so there was no need to worry about overcrowding until they started digging down you know for to remove some of these potential extra corpses and found a whole bunch of bodies lined in corpse wax because all the cemeteries had been chosen for soil that was wet and sandy and didn't support much air or life. So it wasn't good oh, for grazing. For sure. It wasn't good for farming. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, that there makes wasn't, sense. So it's a good, like, okay, well, you know, this land isn't good for anything else. We'll put our dead here, which has a lot of those anaerobic bacteria and wet, sandy soil created the perfect conditions. So there's a lot of very well-preserved saponified bodies uh, <laughs> around the world, but a <laughs> but a disproportionate amount in Germany. That's really neat. But it's kind of interesting too, because kind of given enough time and little weather changes and stuff, it they probably might make that soil a little bit fertile because <laughs> the phosphorus and all of the, the you know, the bacteria is going to break everything down and, you know, these nutrients are going to go into the soil. So I'm wondering if you, you could, I mean, like, you know, like actually make a, like use, use human fertilizer, just the soil. I'll tell you what, whichever one of us dies first, Satosh, the other can water the grave and yeah. then, you know, check, check it in about 30 years or 18 months. Well, I, I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily going to work for me. I've, uh, oh, wait, no, no, no. We've already had, we've already agreed to do uh, corpse pants from Iceland. We, we were going to do corpse pants because you have to gift the corpse pants, right. In order for them to actually right. work. Yeah. Right. They have to be willed. Um, another fun Halloween episode. So welcome new <laughs> oh, folks I, and come on back through. If, if people are wondering, they're, they're in wonderful ancient, uh, traditions. It's from Iceland. Let's talk about death. Let's talk about, no, just me. <laughs> Let's talk about eternity. Let's talk about <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the improv master. Let's talk about all the good things and the gross things that may be about your death. <laughs> the way we have determined death has changed a lot, even over recent history. Um, and we have a lot of different definitions, almost in terms of like the Mel Brooks or a Princess Bride style, where it's, you know, well, there's not quite dead, mostly dead. And all the way dead. <laughs> Turns out your friend here is only mostly dead. <laughs> Which is my favorite little bit there when Billy Crystal goes, eh, pe, 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 look who knows so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. Currently, what is the definition of death? So we define it in Western medicine right now, not just as the cessation of breathing and the heartbeat, but the, the real gold standard that we look for is the recognition of 
whether or not the brain is able to perform certain actions. And this is usually where something like a, a, an electroencephalogram comes in or an EEG. So we have very, very particular protocols that we follow to see if the brain is talking to the rest of the body. If it's not to a certain threshold, we call that death. And it should be noted, Josh, that this is not like an absolute. This is a moving target right now. But that's the point at which we can tell a family or something like that with a strong amount of confidence that doing more for your loved one in this particular case would actually be doing detriment or be doing harm. So we have brain death and heart death are two different definitions. And over time, we've now come to rely much more on, as you said, you know, cessation of all the organs. Sure. Um, and we've also talked in previously about some of the things you see in dying, agonal breathing, which is that sort of death rattle, the you know, quick intake and the... <sighs> right. Um, and it, it kind of goes all the way out, you know, and then that's the last breath you hear. Yes. As well as what you may consider death throes, uh, you know, again, minor muscle spasms mm -hmm. as the body's electrical signals start firing more sporadically or randomly. Um, all of these can be signs of death, but they're very modern in terms of the definition. It wasn't always like this. And in fact, over the years, there are quite a number of different ways that people used to prove or test for death. And so some of these are actually a lot of fun to uh, read about, and some of them are quite gruesome, and I figured we'd cover a few. <laughs> these are going to be fun. All right, go ahead, go ahead. Right? And so, by the way, this is a great way for people to kind of think about there's going to be some point in time, like 100 or years from now, or maybe even 50 years from now, where people look back at how we determine death and go, what the fuck? <laughs> we shouldn't, like, we yeah, shouldn't why just didn't crap they on just that. Why didn't they just scan them with lasers? I mean, yeah, gosh. Yeah, the laser scanner right here. Damn. You just turn so, on the fusion generator and turn on the lasers. Not to beat a dead horse, but let's go back to Germany. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, and specifically late 19th century Germany, which at that time was probably one of the best places to perish because they had what were called waiting mortuaries. Okay which were popularized in the late 1880s. So, you know, around Victorian times. <laughs> Where um, we do our best work, yes. But most of these waiting mortuaries uh, called Leichenhaus were in Munich. So Munich Leichenhaus. Okay. And they allowed corpses or anybody you suspected might be dead to lie on zinc trays until they began to putrefy or began to decompose. So the zinc trays were filled with an antiseptic to reduce the chance of infection and to delay putrefaction and rotting. And the areas around the trays were decorated with fragrant flowers to disguise the inevitable smell of death. This, is, this served a couple different purposes. One, having the trays and sterile helped to identify any bodies that were infected, although that was a largely secondary and unappreciated purpose of these places. Mm -hmm. And second, to make sure that those who died were actually dead, that you weren't prematurely burying anyone. Gotcha. That, that makes a lot of sense. So this 
there was still not a perfect understanding and we didn't have these types of techniques of how to kind of codify whether or not a person was past the point that they could wake back up. So as a very, very simple example, Josh, you probably know this, you don't declare a person dead until they are warm and dead. So meaning if they've gone out into the cold, or if they've fallen through the ice or something, you don't declare them dead until you've gotten them back up to normal temperature, because if their body temperature is really, really low, they actually can be preserved for quite some time. And I imagine from time to time in Germany, especially like the winters are especially harsh, that if you don't wait, you know, sometimes a person rare occasion, like in the mortuary, will just warm up to normal temperature, their heart will start beating at a normal rate again, and then they'll just kind of wake up and say, hey, what up? <laughs> Which would be quite disconcerting. It would, so, it would freak some people out. But I wonder, like, how often it happened. Because you needed to have a waiting mortuary, right? Which means it happened some amount of the time. So I wonder how often it would happen until, like, a newbie uh, smart enough to be like, ah, oh, there goes another one. <laughs> hey, I, what's up, uh, you know, Wolf? <laughs> Welcome back. I wouldn't hold your breath. Although you could because the trays were, as I said, decorated with fragrant flowers to disguise the smell of death. And this might actually be where the custom of putting decorative flowers at a funeral service started. Speculation only. Yeah. Often the mortuaries were divided by class. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Dude, you even get to die better. That's not. Well, but it's very fair, I guess, I understand, because there were these death trains also, right? And, you know, if they were going off to places that people would pay to be in the first class death death train rather than, you know, further back along the thing. Well, much like the system used for safety coffins, morgues were staffed 24 hours a day by attentive caretakers. And clearly people who had some deep-seated issues. Well, well, or, you know, it was like, oh, it's a living. Okay, what do I have to do? Watch a bunch of dead no, bodies. But it's, but it's not. It's a living. <laughs> watching watching the dying. Yeah, there, there's a trade-off there for sure that you make a living while you watch people dying. The corpses were rigged to bell systems that would alert the staff of a corpse's reawakening. Although the bloating process involved in a putrefying body caused a lot of false alarms. Sure, yeah, yeah, because if it just needed to tip something instead of someone actively pulling on a rod or something saying ding, ding, ding. That has nothing to do with Save by the Bell. That comes from boxing. Oh, yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. There was a, a researcher, Franz Hartmann, who collected what he claims were more than 700 separate instances of live burial. Most medical professionals maintained that it was rare if it happened at all. So it was kind of like the urban legend for the day, but it had seeped into the popular consciousness so much that this whole industry of waiting mortuaries rose up. Another fun one, we can jump to the Revolutionary War, the American Revolutionary War. Uh, saw an increase in the use of invisible inks on both the British and American side. Cool spycraft. Important why? Well, because one of the ways to reveal it was to use the dead. 
Oh, wait, wait, what? By using acetate of lead to create an ink, every soldier had a small piece of paper with the phrase, I am really dead. The paper could then be placed under the corpse's nose and a decomposing body would release sulfur dioxide and that would activate the ink. So if you put it under their nose and the phrase, I am really dead appeared on the paper, the corpse was officially decided dead. That's actually, that's super useful because the, the putrefying bacteria in your nasal cavities would start to produce sulfur. Although false positives were an occasional problem. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Because if you have, you know, enough, if you have something rotting your nose, even to a small degree, it does depend on how much sulfur needed to come out in order to cause the chemical reaction. Well, not a lot because apparently... Just poor dentistry, like tooth decay and tonsillitis, could also cause the emission of sulfur dioxide, depending on the bacteria, Oh, leading that same ink to test positive for one death, just if you had terrible breath and were sleeping really still. Gotcha. Okay. I'm not quite dead. I'm getting better. I'm getting better. Yeah. Although the natural process of decay allowed a lot of 18th and 19th century doctors to be fairly certain the bodies they pronounced Uh were fit to be buried everyone still had a few doubts which led to the creation of this is my favorite the prix de orches a contest put forth by the french academy of science who said they would award twenty thousand gold francs to whoever invented a foolproof (laughs) death test just real quick prix d'orche yeah that (laughs) just for those of our french People who are like, what did he just say? Yeah, P-R-I-X, Prix, and then D apostrophe, O-U-R-C-H-E-S, Prix d'Urche. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> to correct your I mean, I mean, that's it. It was, it was a, a prize of 20,000 francs to be awarded to whoever could come up with a, you know, foolproof, method of proving death. But this is awesome, right? Because this is the same kind of thing that we're doing nowadays where, you know, you'll have someone who's really, really passionate about a particular cause. Uh, you, You have, what's his name? Bill Gates. The Gates Foundation is a great idea. Let's go around and eliminate the biggest causes of death around the world and so you just say here's a bunch of money and if you get something and i'll give you a grant and this i I really love this the more and more i hear of it because that's that's what you do you encourage innovation that way and you say come on over if you have something that you can show me and if you prove it to all of us we'll give you the money i was unable to find if anyone ever had it or if anyone ever eventually did actually win it but there are a couple issues of the lancet like volumes one and two and it's an old journal yeah yeah that's that's way back when (laughs) and it's it's really really wonderful like the lancet would have been at issue two around the same time that this contest was actively going on (laughs) i love that i i really love this because they were to the best of their ability using markers of what they thought were death and you know it's a pretty good rate of turnaround that say oh if there's sulfurous stuff coming out of your mouth and nose 
there's probably putrefaction going on and putrefaction going on in the head is probably associated with death. I, I really love it. They were using the, the tools they had at hand to further their understanding and, and use that in a practical way, uh, like on the battlefield. I really, really, really love it. Just on the buy, the EEG, right, electroencephalogram that we have right now, it's the best thing that we have. It's the, you know, the that's how we're able to move the thing on the little the little measure of, oh, death is now here. It's electrical death in the brain. And like I said before, 50 years from now, someone's going to come along and be like, dude, why did they just do this? Uh, and in fact, by that point, the EEG will be used to detect vampires hiding among dialysis patients. <laughs> You don't have to use an EEG. You just look for fat jaundiced <laughs> things and you just look at the teeth and you go, oh, fangs, get out of here, vampire. Get out of here. <laughs> just, uh. Or or you open the window, no. you know, see who's visiting the dialysis center at night. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're a bad person. <laughs> I... But that's it for this week, the Halloween episode. Everybody, hope you are having fun watching spooky movies like Hocus Pocus or Nightmare Before Christmas, having some candy, and uh, curdling that blood late into the night. Oh, yeah. Um, Enjoy yourselves, guys. This is It's a beautiful time. I know you can't necessarily go out trick-or-treating, but this is a beautiful holiday. I mean, you know what? You can always stay home and do the mash. <laughs> what, what mash would that be, Josh? The monster mash. Uh, <laughs> it was a graveyard smash. Uh, uh, <laughs> We're gonna- That's it for this week. As always, this show is produced by Help With That. As always. We love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and others. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to some of the sources used research in this episode. And until next time, as always, stay safe, and if you can, happy travels. Bye, everybody. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.